The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, we again return thanks to you. We give thanks to you that you've generously provided us uh, not only a new day in life, but with the rising of the sun comes the testimony of the, the goodness of our Creator and the revelation of your character and uh, the ways that you've ordered things and how you um, desire for your, your plans to unfold. These are all revealed at least in part through the natural creation, and they declare your glory. They declare your excellencies, but we recognize we have a far better, a far superior testimony through the scriptures, and so we um, all the more give thanks to you for that, and we ask that we would um, steward them, see them, be transformed by them, recognizing them for what they are. They're the very words of God, and that we would uh, view them even as the psalmist is expressed here in Psalm 119, that uh, there would be a a righteous fear. Uh, who are we to, to say, thus says the Lord, and this is what he expects, and this is what you desire, and this is what you um, are pleased with, or uh, abhor, or, or other like matters. It's only because you've revealed yourself through your word, and it is a, a righteous and a holy word. It's a one that will transform and undo us. And so we ask that you would um, speak through the plain testimony of the scriptures, and that we would hear and receive them accordingly, that I would teach as one who teaches the very scriptures, the very words of God, and that those who hear would receive them accordingly. And Lord, we, we thank you again for that uh, distinct uh, privilege, and we, we pray that, again, find us faithful. Find us faithful in the work of discipleship, and the work of worship, and the work of exhortation and encouragement. And we pray the, for a, a, a like um, uh, faithfulness for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Nigeria, we rejoice that uh, the church is growing and excelling there in, in so many ways, but uh, the testimony that has gone forth is that they're growing and uh, progressing in so many ways, but they're, they're in need of strengthening in their discipleship and that, that daily investment and, and, and giving themselves to the discipline, study, and application, understanding of the scriptures. And so we, we ask that you would help them and that you would strengthen leadership to that end, that they would prioritize that and recognize the need and be equipped to to lead accordingly, and for those who are just uh, faithfully within the church and exercising their gifting and loving one another, that they would also um, work hard at personal discipleship and even speaking truth to one another and investing in one another as they have opportunity as well. We do thank you again also for uh, time in James. It's been a already a, a, a very sweet and encouraging journey as we've just uh, been investing our, our efforts in introducing the book, but I thank you that uh, we have the opportunity to give uh, this measure of freedom and time to such matters, and I pray that it would be uh, a helpful resource as we um, ad begin advancing through the text as soon as next week and wrestle through what what does uh, the Word of God have for us, what is James writing, and how does that uh, force us to think differently and to, to apply things to our life and and to put it to action. James expects action, um, but may we have your help as we continue to lay foundations this final week of introduction. Um, help me to be clear about the, the sweep and the, um, the, the scope of the message of James and how he develops themes and what he draws out, because we want to we wanna know and love your word better. And so we ask that you'd be our help and that uh, I would be clear and that this would be a, a time that is profitable and pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so this morning, uh, we'll not only finish what we began last week, namely an overview of major themes and matters of special attention for the book of James, but also our introduction to the book as a whole. So this is an introduction that has included a character study and history of the book's author, James the Just or James the Righteous, James the brother of our Lord, and a range of ways that he could be identified, a man who shines in the history of the background of the early church, but who is uniquely esteemed by his peers, uh, Paul himself referring to him as one of the pillars of the church. So again, somebody that we view and, and highly esteem and recognize and honor, but if you just look at the sweep of the, the history of the church, maybe he's not quite as overtly present, even though he's very clearly present. So we tried to draw that out the first week. Then we gave attention, uh, gave attention to how James chose to introduce himself in the opening of this letter, being content to simply be viewed as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with this, we also gave attention to his original recipients, the dispersed tribes of Israel who had put their faith in Messiah, the resurrected Christ as well as the letter's historical context. What does it mean that they're dispersed? And why does that matter? And, and why is James writing to them? And they're not even in Jerusalem where he's pastoring. And then um, last week, we began working on the major themes and matters of special emphasis in this book, covering testing and trials and perseverance, being made perfect or complete or, or fully mature. And then we also looked at his speaking directly to God's word in the Old Testament, obviously one and the same. Um, but we also slid in there a measure of attention to patience as well because of their dynamic overlap with these other themes which themselves wove in and through one another. And so we focused primarily on three themes but covered even more because of the intimate overlap and impact they have on one another. Now this week, we'll aim to cover the remaining themes. And I didn't put the chart up there, but you might be familiar with it and you might be thinking, how many themes are left and when are we going to be done? Well, we're going to give some, matter, uh, some special attention to matters of uh, interest in terms of major themes as well as just unique things that he draws out in the book. We're going to address the central passage and the outline of the book, which means that today we'll work through justified law, faith, rich and poor, works, wisdom, speech, judge, ask or pray, and sin. Now, I know that sounds like a lot to cover. It is. But we, we're going to pace ourselves. Uh, we're going to persevere and work through the introduction. Uh, and I know you might be thinking in view of what we covered last week, this is going to be a long morning, but I don't want you to worry. I don't think that's helpful to, to lay an expectation and produce anxiety. You're each allowed two restroom breaks, and there will be an intermission. <laughs> so, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, you can have three. No, um, these engagements be less comprehensive, and there's a reason for that. We gave the subjects last week a little bit more attention, in part because they were establishing a foundation with the elements um, of the book as a whole. I, I see those first three as really unique in their, their weight and emphasis um, and how they impact the progress of our study in the book. And the idea here, though, as we cover these others, is to give a, I want you to give a fluency of the subject matter within the book as a whole and to demonstrate the dynamic relationships of the subjects with one another because we're going to address things. We're going to talk through any given theme as it comes up, but I want you to see now kind of how it's developed and broadly speaking, but also how it is informed by other things. So we're not looking at it in just this narrow focus each week because we tend to, to, to lock down just a few verses and you can get lost in the sweep of the book or lose a view to the sweep of the book. So we want to lay this broad foundation now. So let's begin with a view to the law. And as we do, I would just remind you that we read together this morning, just a few minutes ago from Psalm 119, 
And I would argue, I think it's very, very plain that Psalm 119 would have been intimately known by James. He's a student of the scriptures. He was a strong student of the scriptures. He loved the word of God. The Psalter obviously was an expression of worship that the Jewish people would use in terms of uh, singing and reflecting on God's truth. It wouldn't have been foreign to him. It wouldn't have been something maybe he would have casually consulted. I think he would have been intimately familiar with, of all the Psalms, likely Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 23, Psalm 119. So it would have been one, again, known by James. So with that in view, remember, as we pray for the church in Nigeria, you think about something, you think about, well, that, that's part of the church. That's part of Christ's church. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's no different than if they were here. Well, now we're going to do a different disposition in terms of not just geographic difference, but a, a timeline difference and recognize that James would have read and studied and loved this word too. And so hear these words once more and know that they, they and so many other like passages undoubtedly seasoned James' thoughts and his language. And so again, we're approaching the subject of the law, but consider what James, among other things, would have thought about as he thought about the law. He too would have read in Hebrew and much more uh, eloquently than we can present here, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart is in dread of your words. I rejoice at your word as one who finds much spoil. I hate and abhor lying, but I, I love your law. Okay, remember that. I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. Those who love your law have much peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Yahweh, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. So again, James pastored in the Jerusalem church, which at this time would have consisted of Jews and Jewish proselytes, those who were Gentiles but had effectively converted to Judaism, who had, um, and these were Jews and Jewish proselytes who had put their faith in the risen Jesus Christ as their Messiah. They knew and loved God's law. They would have had a very, very close relationship to things that maybe we occasionally give special attention to or, or enjoy in our daily reading or our general reading throughout the scriptures. They would have intimately known these passages and specifically they would have known and loved God's law. So it's no surprise that the language of the law receives significant attention within this book. We're mindful, again, historic context, Jewish believers and Messiah loving the scriptures, loving God's law. And the nature of its attention presses us to wrestle with our own understanding and application of the law. How do we appreciate that? We're not, we're not first century Jewish Christians. We're well past that. We have 2,000 years of history. The church has grown magnificently, gone all over the world, and it's Primarily, the, the, the balance of it is very Gentile-heavy, obviously, Israel itself being in a, a state of unbelief and their partial hardening. But this was the experience of James's readers. They, they would have known and loved God's law. They would have thought about it, given attention to it. This wouldn't have not been a, boy, how do I think about the law? They would have naturally thought about the law because while they knew and loved the law, they also received this letter in a larger and developing context, too. And so they would have recognized that uh, there's things changing and even relationship to how to understand the law. They, they would have understood that. They were in a dynamic situation. They would have also recognized that James personally participated in many of these changes and that the clarifying freedom that Gentiles are not obligated to the law of Moses, as we saw in Acts 15. Now, that's later than this word or this, this letter, but they would have been understood. This is the, the groundwork would have already been established in terms of we can love God's law, but the man, the pastor, the, the, the one who's writing us, 
And speaking about the law is also going to talk about how Gentiles are not under the law, Acts 15. And while working through the nature of this dynamic developing context of Jews and Gentiles being made into one body, namely the church, James would also later go on to encourage Paul to demonstrate his support for continued keeping the law. We saw that in Acts 21. And so there's this dynamic of they know and love God's law. They're very familiar with it. There's a differing, uh, a new body being formed, Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles are not under the law, so their relationship to the law is going to be different, how they think about it, how they engage it. But then there's still that measure of uh, tension with how do we exercise love for one another, how do we exercise uh, clarity and affection and consistency. And so you have things like Acts 15 and Acts 21. And here we are, though, he's writing and speaking about the law and it's written for our benefit. So how do we understand that? There's going to be some tension there for us as well. So there's, again, unique historical elements that I would say inform James's context of his audience and his language, but we need not use that. We don't need to say, well, we're good hermeneutical students, so first century Jewish Christians or Jewish proselytes, they know and love the law. It's a different context. It's before Jerusalem Council. It's just an interesting letter in history. No, 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 we have to do better than that. We don't, we don't use that as a means to dismiss his speaking about the law. He wrote to the church. You recognize that, right? He wrote to the church. We are the church. He wrote to the church under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Therefore, we need to do the work of wrestling through our own understanding, appreciation, and application of the law as expressed here in James and the totality of the New Testament. Remembering nowhere is there a conflict of instructions or conclusions about the law. It's not that, well, James says it this way, but you know, he didn't, he hadn't quite thought about it as much as Paul had. And you know, and, and John, he just didn't fool with that whole law. And we don't introduce conflicts or, 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 or measures of tension or inconsistencies. But there's always a context though, to understand it, where commanded and expectations need to, need to be applied and understood. But that being said, we, again, we don't excuse the fact that he speaks about the law. So in our introducing of this theme, I'm going to remain a bit broad and let the individual engagements press us to clarity on these matters. But even so, I don't think there, uh, I, I do think there are a few matters that are helpful to draw out here in addition to just this broad appreciation that we have to wrestle with this. We need to see that it wasn't an aberration with James. It was something we need to think about. But again, let's look at a few texts. James 1.25 uh, matters such as the ways that James describes the law. I think this is helpful. He doesn't just say that, that the law, you know, that, that stone around the neck. What does he say? It's the perfect law, the law of freedom. So he, again, he's esteeming the law. He's got a high affection for it. Then we see in James 2.10, he also clearly makes references to the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, as we would refer to him, that, that frames this engagement with how one should understand their keeping and or transgressing of the law, that it's not something that can be segmented with some elements overlooked and others esteemed. So he says you... You're not doing this. You're showing partiality or you're disobeying in these other ways. And, and, and you, that's sin. And just like murdering is sin. And just like these other things are sin. We don't divide the law. And then we go to James 2.8. And I think perhaps most important is how James frames the law in a like fashion as Jesus. Jesus is brother, true, but Jesus is Lord with a view to loving God and loving others. That's how he framed the law, how to think about the law. And he does this, as we noted in our first week of introduction, with language that is reminiscent and plainly influenced by Jesus' teachings, notably the Sermon on the Mount, clearly impacted James and his teaching. So it's no surprise that he speaks about the law in a like manner that Jesus did as well. So engaging matters of the law will, will have its challenges. 
I've been under teaching before, and I've watched pastors um, speak about passages that maybe have the word law in it eight or ten times, and it just got skillfully danced around because it's hard. It's a hard subject to kind of work with sometimes. So it's going to be hard for us in some measure, but I don't want it to be something that we overlook or dismiss because it will bring, James will bring a, a balance of emphasis, uh, an emphasis that brings a different vantage point than many of the other New Testament developments of the subject. The law gets talked about, I think, differently with Paul than James. It's not because they're in conflict. We don't need to introduce conflict, but because they're providing another side to a very complex subject. And so it's a very general treatment of the law, but I hope to season you to recognize when you're reading, don't worry. James has a context, but also don't use his context to excuse our wrestling through it. Now we have faith and justification. And this might be the one that, ah, yes, we're, we're finally at that one that, um, it, it, it produces uh, excitable discussions about James and Paul. That's off the table right now. But it is an important subject that has produced, again, a various measure of challenges as it does relate to James's development that faith um, uh, has been um, specifically how he understands faith as it relates to justification, which is really important, right? Your justification, you're being declared righteous before God. We, we have to get that right. And so James introduces that, and he gives us an interesting approach to it, different than other people do. And the truth of justification by faith goes all the way back to, I would say, Adam and Eve's own restoration before God. They were not the exception here any more than anyone else has been or ever will be the exception to justification by faith. And further, we see that Abel, their, uh, their son, the son of Adam and Eve, leads the examples of faith provided by the author of Hebrews. However, it's not until Abraham that the doctrine of justification by faith secures its clearest foundations and is subsequently developed in various measures, most notably, obviously, in its New Testament treatments. But it's a doctrine that the New Testament constantly looks back and says, Abraham, we know what happened with Abraham. He was justified by faith. And as you well know, the Apostle Paul made this critical point of doctrine a major emphasis throughout his writings, answering the question of just how can someone be justified by faith? That's a really important question to answer, isn't it? Uh, you, you're, you're not going to get anywhere. You don't get in the door without answering that and resolving that matter. How is one justified before God? To which Paul answers, because God is both just and the justifier through Christ, as he states in Romans 3. We see in 3, 21 to 26. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. So we don't have to worry about what's he saying about the law versus what James is saying. Don't, don't see them in tension and don't worry too much about that. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith for a demonstration of his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So justification by faith is made effectual because God is both just and the justifier through the finished work of Christ and one's faith therein. Now James in no way assaults that doctrine. He doesn't challenge it. He doesn't even question it. 
And it was not later articulated by Paul here in Romans 3 and other passages as a, as a rebuttal to James's teaching, which were already being made available to the church. So don't see the two in conflict. Don't see that, well, um, sometimes it's nice to speak after someone else. Maybe Pastor Frank feels this way with, um, in the second hour, like I can clean some things up, you know, and I can slide it in under the, the, the umbrella of hermeneutics and maybe polish it up. There's an advantage to that. There certainly is. That's not Paul's advantage over James. There's not an advantage one over the other. Rather, they're complementary, addressing two sides of the same matter. And this brings us to our first point of historic context that should be considered here with James. As we've mentioned and already plainly established, James pastored in Jerusalem, serving alongside the elders and apostles, notably Peter, the apostle Peter, who he's recorded to have overlapped with and interacted with on a number of occasions, James was a respected authority within the church, Paul himself referring to James as a pillar whom he personally met with and even ran his doctrine by to have it affirmed. So don't forget that. Paul, the great justification by faith, went to James to make sure that he was clear and accurate in his own gospel testimony. Paul, who was not shy to name persons who compromised or undermined the integrity of the faith and yet is only recorded to have spoken respectfully of James. He was willing to rebuke Peter. I guarantee he would rebuke James if necessary. So James, who was at the center of the Jerusalem council and authored its authoritative conclusion, which clearly expressed what? Justification by faith. Justification by faith alone, as we also would affirm the doctrine in a, quote, reformed vantage point. So the, the, the Reformation would kind of re-secure a lot of the... the the foundational doctrines that we hold as precious. They were certainly there, but it became um, a very uh, a cleansing, uh, a, well, a reformation of the, the, the larger church. And one of the things was justification by faith alone. Well, James would have articulated it the same way, which, again, carefully expresses that no measure of works, um, there's no measure of works that can produce salvation or even that it is work in tandem with faith. James would say, yes. And some people are like, oh, no, I've read James. And James would say, yes, did you read me in context? Yes, did you read me as I spoke? Because this is a critical, that's a critical element of historical context to recognize he was one of the earliest champions of justification by faith alone. And again, a critical element of historical context that we have been laying the foundation for over the last few weeks. Now consider the progress and development of this precious doctrine of justification by faith that James goes on to provide through this letter. His contribution would be captured by his striking statement in the second chapter of his letter, where he writes in chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, completed, made fully mature. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works, and not by faith alone. You might be thinking, well, you've just undone everything you said. I didn't, and neither did James. So let's just walk with him for a moment here. I think first it's worth noting that in the middle of these verses here, James quotes from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, just the same as Paul does in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3, when he too is unpacking justification by faith, albeit from a different vantage point. Paul is excluding works as being salvific. So you understand what Paul's doing? Works do not contribute to your salvation. He's excluding works as being salvific, a matter that James does not entertain or even address, even in a statement that, quote, a man is justified by works and not faith alone. 
Rather, James is speaking to the nature and character of genuine faith or living faith. Genuine faith that justifies a man before God. Paul, on the other hand, is presupposing genuine faith, which works itself out, and addressing the errors of merit-based salvation. So, while I've argued that James's contribution to the development of the doctrine of justification by faith alone could be chap- captured by verses 22 through 24 of his second chapter, it's not until you get to verse 26 that you've yet fully captured and understood his conclusion. So he states in verse 26, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. To which Paul would say, Amen, absolutely true. Genuine faith has works. But works don't save. They're not saying conflicting things. Paul's presupposing what James has already established. James is not even introducing what Paul's having to correct. And so it's a full argument. And we're really missing something out if we're pitting one against the other. You're you're making a very deficient argument about justification by faith alone. You're not rescuing it. You're actually diminishing greater clarity to it. So dead faith does nothing. James is very clear. Dead faith does nothing. Dead faith justifies no one before God. So while it will take some measure to unpack these matters and are walking through this letter, and under, I just want you to understand that James's articulation of these matters need to be engaged with a view to the context and respective development within the immediate passage and book. Because if you're reading James looking for Paul, you're going to be frustrated. And if you're reading Paul trying to understand James, you're going to be frustrated unless you recognize them in their respective context and the nature of their arguments. Further, it well could be argued if there's any merit to such matters that James loved the doctrine of justification by faith as much as Paul did. Uh, Some people will say, well, this guy, he's kind of strong here. This guy, he's kind of strong here. You, you wouldn't say that about either of these guys. They were extraordinarily strong and faithful. And when it came to justification by faith alone, it wasn't, well, James, he's, he's, you know, he's good in some areas, but just don't ask him about that. No, they both loved and knew this doctrine. And you need to remember, in view of that, it was James who gave the church a letter that is absolutely packed with exhortations and commands to action. That sounds like he understands the doctrine and loves the church and wants it to fulfill the working out of that doctrine. Action that is wholly consistent with a living faith, a justifying faith. A faith that also demonstrates itself in a range of interpersonal relationships too, including among those who are of different social and economic standing. Even so, addressing this next subject matter of the rich and poor, it's maybe not necessarily themes that we would anticipate in a New Testament book, And maybe not even specifically in the book of James, you think like, well, there's that one section. He gives that really clear illustration. And he actually says a lot more than that. Um, And it seems like, well, why is that addressed in the New Testament? Because that seems like it's uh, more of a social matter and less, uh, not so much of an overt theological matter, which we look to the the scriptures for doctrine. Well, there's doctrine here um, because we recognize that uh, finances, stewarding of resources, they're not foreign topics to much of the New Testament. Paul writes about it rather clearly himself. And here the matters receive a clear and intensive treatment, drawing out some of the very real dynamics of the living out of one's faith in a world that is governed in no small part through having and exercising wealth and resources or not having as much as others. So these matters were very real elements of the Christian community, which often was constituted by persons with less. That's just been part of the Christian experience. That is less materially speaking. And then there are the challenges that come for those who do have and often have an abundance. There's different challenges. Paul speaks very plainly to that. 
Believers that are more fluent need to carefully apply their faith in relationships to their fortunate standing and not drift toward partiality, toward abusing others or worldly perspectives. James is going to touch on all of those. Also, there are those who are more affluent and outside of the faith, those whom the believing community are often intimately impacted by and need wisdom to understand and interact with as well. So you're going to have bosses. You're going to have bad bosses. You're going to have overbearing bosses. And James speaks very clearly to that and even has a measure of very clear rebuke for them as well. And these were matters of which James would have been intimately familiar. If we think back to the historic context, the Jerusalem church had a lot of need for support um, in the early years from famine and just from uh, caring for others and a range of other things. This is plainly documented in a range of passages from Acts 11, Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Galatians 2. Consistently, there is a giving, uh, supporting, a fiscal um, uh, support of the Jerusalem church where James was pastoring. He knew the needs of the local church and how that impacted the working out of faith, works, and walking well and toward perfection, maturity, completion. So again, the church needed wisdom to skillfully negotiate the balance of needs and resources, as well as the dynamics that introduced to the relationships among believers and the larger church. Now, the next major thematic element is works. And this one's a bit challenging to speak to by way of a summarizing overview because like several of the other themes, there's a subjective element to categorizing many of its potential examples. Um, I went through the whole book of James and I printed it off on cardstock so I can more dynamically interact with it and mark it up and, and kind of decide where, where does he dress works. And you can mark almost, it can be like a, a first generation highlighter and just <laughs> the whole page is yellow. Well, what's the point of highlighting at that point in time? And there's, you can do that with James because he's got tons of references and inferences to works, but I wanted to narrow that scope a little bit. So this, this is a difficult matter to, in large part, because the book has so many calls to action, has so many calls to action with it, and those actions are the works of the believer. And it's an expression of faith, it's worshipful obedience, and the expectant patterns of life and conduct. So we're going to narrow it down in our focus as much as we can, but recognize that it just really permeates the, the whole of the book. So as we progress in our study, and as we come to our first post-introduction passage, the, maybe how we can view verses 2 through 4, the beginning of the, beginning of the end of the introduction, um, as we get to verses 2 to 4, um, one that you're familiar with from giving a lot of attention last week, you'll note here and find that the first two verses of this book um, has two imperatives in it, consider it all joy, let perseverance have its work. First two imperatives in a book that has 50 plus within it, almost 50% of the um, verses have imperatives, commands in it, and they're expressing expectant works of genuine believers. So we're barely going to dip our toes into the book and it's going to be expectation, actions, works things to do, because what does faith do? Faith does. Faith obeys. Faith acts. And with this, also recognize that there's an extraordinary range of works that we could argue are not only referenced to, but called upon to engage throughout this book. It's going to be peppered throughout. But for our purposes, I've limited the scope of attention to this engagement of works to the more overt references, to the, the more plain use of works, as it were, such as we see in the development of the subject in chapter 2, 
and also the plainer examples such as being called upon to be a doer of the word. Maybe passages that you're especially familiar with and maybe thought, yeah, James talks about being a doer of the word. He actually says it three times. Be a doer of the word, 122, a doer of the work, 125, and a doer of the law, 411. Now that last one is in a bit of a rebuke. You're not being a doer of the law, which would speak to the fact that if it's a correction, you should be a doer of the law. Now, I think a helpful way to approach the theme of work, even in our more limited scope of the subject, is to see its relationship and purpose in the book. It's the demonstrable expression of other things. It's the, the fleshing out of characteristics, convictions, faith, and more. That's what works is. And it, too, has a perfect expression. We talked about that a good bit last week, the perfect, the fulfilled, the mature. So it has a perfect expression, a mature or fully completed expression, which is our aim, right? It's to be perfect, complete, fully mature. And we see this in the first reference we have to work in the letter, and it comes in a very familiar text to us. Again, chapter 1, verse 4. And let perseverance, what? Have its perfect work, have its completed, fully matured work. So if we've established, as we've established, works are the demonstrable expression of other things. That's what works are, the demonstrable expression of other things. It is the fleshing out of characteristics, of convictions, of faith, and more. So in this sample, perseverance has works. There are actions associated with its sincere presence. So genuine perseverance demonstrates itself in works. Perseverance is not, a, it's not simply an idea or an ideal. It has something tangible coupled with it. And it's a coupling of actions that remain and endure over time and through challenges. That's what perseverance is. But if you take works out of perseverance, then it is. It's just a philosophy. It's just a thought. It's just an ideal. But true perseverance has works, works that endure, that bear up under. That's the nature of perseverance. And that's what James is directing us toward. And so it will be with these other expressions of work. They will flesh out their associated elements through tangible actions. This is even true of our relationship to the scriptures, which, if sincere, cannot be a passive relationship. One who truly knows and loves the word of God puts it into action, which is what James expects of his readers, that they would become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now, even here, if it, we were to go beyond the explicit references to works, we would note that immediately after Two articulations of the expectation of the believer being a doer of the word here in chapter 1. James goes on to flesh this out by addressing the disciplining of one's tongue, the care of the needy, <clears throat> and a life of holiness, all expressions of the work of doing. So that's the, the teasing out of what does this work look like? And so this book is richly filled. It might have an explicit reference to work these things out, do these things, but then you can watch and it has a continued pattern of action, as it were, works. It wasn't just something he introduced with a matter of faith, but we can understand why he introduced it with a matter of faith. Now, with all my talk of speaking to and restricting my formal documentation to the overt references to works, my next two examples are a bit of a, a gray area between being an explicit or implicit example of works, and they're both tied to the law. So let's look at James 2, 8 and 12. He states, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you are doing well. And then he continues on, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. Now you may have picked up on the language in verse 8 here, namely the use of fulfilling, which is the verbal form of 
making something perfect, complete, or fully mature. And as we have and will continue to argue, work is the means by which other elements are perfected, completed, made fully mature, as their works flesh them out and give them demonstrable actions that provide measured progress and growth. Again, like we spoke of more broadly with the scriptures in chapter 1, so to here, the law has an expectation for action. And taking that action is the means by which such things as the law, the royal law, are fulfilled, made perfect, made complete. And in this particular case, James here provides the command which implicitly has work built into it. And what is that? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's how it works itself out. And then verse 12 is a little more direct in the work that it expects, namely speaking and acting as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. Once more making it plain that the scriptures, and more precisely here, the law, have expectations that they will be accompanied by and fulfilled through work through words, and through actions. Now, this same principle is expressed much more thoroughly through the remainder of chapter 2, where works and faith are the central points of discussion. And because I've spoken to the subject of faith, and in view of this being an introduction um, that seasons the primary elements for later study, I'm just going to affirm that we've already, we already have established now, namely that um, a genuine um, engagement with the scriptures expects a response of works. We've already affirmed that a genuine engagement with the law expects a response of works, and also a genuine engagement and expression of faith expects demonstrable works. All of them have the expectation to be accompanied by works, to be fulfilled, made perfect, made fully mature through works. And again, in view of this, faith also is not a fairy tale. Um, people would like to criticize, oh, you just have faith in something, or maybe we even speak... Um, deficiently when we speak of faith. We just got to have faith, making it sound like a fairy tale. Faith is not a fairy tale. It has substance. And that which is it placed itself, faith has something that's tangibly placed itself, namely the finished work of Christ, and it has substance in its sincere expression. And what is that expression? Works. So faith is not a fairy tale, and works show and demonstrate that, that there was a work that's been accomplished, that we direct our faith, that we've rooted our faith, and there's a faith component to works, to demonstrating and working themselves out. Now, our final example here will come in chapter 3, verse 13, where we see that works also puts the wisdom from above on display. The wise and understanding show themselves as such by means of their works, not unlike the one who demonstrates genuine and living faith. So, in a book that is full of imperatives, of commands that are pressing us to perfection or completion, that is secured by means of the wisdom that comes from above, it is no wonder that he also gives such clear attention to the matter of evidentiary works. And from works, we come to the closely associated theme, that of words or speech. Now, unlike the thematic element of works, there is a range of ways by which the theme of words or speech could be developed. Um, but I'll do my best to limit our scope to the explicit engagements within the theme and draw out more implicit examples when they uh, appear to contribute to the development of the theme. So first we'll observe that we know from a range of other passages, to include Jesus' very direct treatment of the subject, that words betray or reveal the what? The heart, right? They, they demonstrate what's inside. It will tell you. That is true when speaking to one's conclusions regarding common thoughts, from sports to politics to works to life. What you think will come out of your mouth. Um, so regarding common thoughts, and certainly how you think about theology, 
What's your theology? What do you understand about God, his word, his commands, his precepts, his principles, what he expects, and how does he show himself? And it will demonstrate itself through interpersonal relationships. What do you think about other people? Well, I guarantee you in the nighttime hours, in the privacy of your home, there's probably lots of words that are revealing the heart. And so words are a reflection of the heart, as we well know. And the first demonstration that James provides of this comes in chapter 1, verse 13, where he states, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now, while we develop this context and argument of this passage in a few weeks, we can plainly see that there is a danger, a propensity, or at least a possibility for someone to speak of their engagement with temptation from a place of theological deficiency. For someone to entertain or even express that they are being tempted by God reflects that in their heart and in their mind, they have come to an erroneous conclusion, one made plain and they're expressing it through speech. Their theology is demonstrated by what they say. And if they're giving an excuse for their temptation, well, God's led me into temptation or God has caused me to be tempted, it's a betrayal of their deficient theology from the heart out the mouth. In chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, we see that speech directs the practical outworking of one's judgment of another. Here it is a deficient, even an evil judgment. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in bright clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So again, words are reflecting the heart and the mind and putting their conclusions to practice. They made a deficient and evil judgment about one person and the next. And that judgment was expressed through their words, which actually put words to action too. However, we have to also recognize that while speech does indeed reflect the heart and the mind, it also can and often is used to express detached ideals and deficient or even insincere convictions. And that's a terrible problem that many of us struggle with in a range of ways and that James vigorously addresses as it's among the most profound hurdles to proper expressions of wisdom that come from above and the fruits thereof. So what are we saying with this? Well, we see a very tangible example of this in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. What use is it, my brothers, if someone says... So it would appear that they're, they're speaking from the heart, out the mouth, but we find that it's deficient and hollow words. If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is out clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, it would sound like you're speaking compassion and mercy toward them, and maybe that your words of compassion and mercy will have works accompanying them, but they don't, so they're hollow and empty words and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? So you see the problem, do you not? Faith, or excuse me, first someone says that they have faith, they give verbal affirmation of faith, but the problem is the consistency of that statement because faith has works and they are clearly lacking in evidentiary works. Second, he presses the matter with a, ver a very relatable example of how faith can and should express itself in the care of those in need, but rather than those words reflecting the heart and mind in a way that bears evidence of understanding and operating in truth, and with this good practice, they show their speech to be hollow shells, just empty words, simply words strung into sentences that, while grammatically correct, lack any true substance, much less heart, which is why I defer to Grammatically deficient, but sincere. But 
Nevertheless, speech doesn't always, always reflect the heart. Sometimes there is a deficiency, a disconnect. Now, as we'll go on to see when working through the remainder of chapter 2, James is going to carry the same basic line of argument through his engagement of the necessary relationship of faith and works. You say you have faith, but you have no works. There's a disconnect, a theological disconnect. The heart speaking out of the mouth is speaking empty words in that case, expressing that one simply saying that they have faith is not enough. Because while it may not be elevated to, to overt hypocrisy, it is nevertheless empty speech. So there's a danger. Speech reveals the heart, but sometimes it also reveals a hypocrisy, a shallow and empty words. And so there's a demand of action that should accompany words as well. Along with this, James provides some clear parameters for speech, that speech, like works, are to be governed by the law of freedom. In 2.12, again, he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. You're to be governed in your speech according to God's word and expectations. And as we'll come to see more comprehensively in the days to come, in chapter 3, James really presses the reality that there's a unique impact with words. And with this, also a greater accountability and they're being exercised in teaching. Therefore, it's the mature man who should cautiously take on the role of using his words to communicate God's truth to his people. And to really drill this down, James gives a uniquely intensive treatment of the profound, profoundly challenging and impactful nature of the tongue as we see in chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a force to set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very word of unrighteousness, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our existence and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Now give a moment of attention back to those final verses here, namely 9 and 10, which speak to a profound and wicked dichotomy. Uh, the same mouth is blessing God and cursing his image bearers. This is a dichotomy that cannot be excused or allowed to stand. And as I stated last week in addressing perfect, completed, mature, James is not simply stating how things are and in such concluding, well, that's just how things are, or it's, it's what it is. No, that's not at all what he's framing these rebukes and corrections with. He is stating them, how he's stating how things are when influenced more by the wisdom from below than from the wisdom from above. And he shares these hard truths to direct and press us to greater wisdom and what it demands of us, a righteous consistency of speech, a maturity that is not inevitable with the passing of time, but in the rooting of oneself in God's wisdom. And with this, I want to draw out one last matter in considering James's use of speech. And it's an inference on my part, but I'm persuaded in view of the, the sweep and tone of the book, this is how James would have us to see the matter of speech as well. Namely, that among its chief expressions of perfection or maturity is found in prayer. I think that's part of how the book develops. He talks about speech. He corrects speech. He says how terrible speech is. And then he finishes with the uh, a climatic expression of a perfect, a mature expression of speech. It's speech directed back to God in praise, thanksgiving, repentance, petition, and struggle. And so with this, let's give some attention to James's engagement 
of the subject of prayer. First, we have the two references to prayer in chapter 1. And while they're not directly identified as prayer, it's plain that he's speak, uh, what he's speaking to in addressing the matter of asking God for something. So we have in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, an expression of what to ask and how. But if, a man of you, uh, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, doubting nothing. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. So we have, if you lack wisdom, what do you do? If you lack wisdom, you ask of God. You pray, you petition. That he will, and, and that will prove to be an invaluable instruction for us as it is the wisdom from above, the wisdom from God that generously provides that what, what we need and gives necessary clarity and understanding to skillfully work out our faith and walk in an increasingly mature manner. We need that wisdom. We lack that wisdom, so what do we do? We petition for it. So that's a really good principle to go ahead and hang our hats on. But there's a manner in which one is to ask. And what does he say? In faith, doubting nothing. There's no place, as James will argue, to petition God for that which you need and for which you know he provides while also unsure of your need and his provision. And perhaps the plainest expression of such doubt is expressed in our, our clinging to sin while asking a holy God for help. That's the perfect expression of a double-minded man to me. I, I, I love my sin, but Lord, would you help me to understand your law? It doesn't work, does it? Uh, Lord, I want wisdom, but I'm going to continue to walk in... A foolish carnality. And so James is going to direct us on how to pray well, how to mature, become perfect, complete in such matters of speech in the form of prayer. Now, advancing to chapter 4, James continues his engagement with the matter of deficient or improper asking for God's help and provision in prayer, demonstrating that we engage a holy and righteous God in prayer and not a, a genie waiting for us to rub his lamp to um, so he can satisfy our whimsical indulgences. James speaks that that's not mature praying. That's not even a mature perspective on praying. And so he speaks to, in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, you lust and do not have, so you murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So again, James is clear you are wrong to presume upon God in prayer. You are to petition for what is pleasing to the Lord and in accordance to his goodwill, not in accordance to your carnal interest. And you petition in faith, knowing that he always does good in the hearing and the giving to his children. And finally, when we come to chapter 5, we see that James does not exclusively speak to the how and what of prayer in the same way we observed in these earlier passages. Rather, he speaks plainly to the beloved about the discipline, the joy, and ministry of prayer. And I'm persuaded that he's done addressing the dangers and follies of immature engagements with prayer and is now speaking to its mature or perfect expressions. He's already addressed deficient and, and reasons why you struggle in prayer and reasons why the Lord doesn't even honor the petitions that we give. But now, moving to the mature expression, the perfect expression He's going to speak about prayer one last time. And just see if you don't hear that distinction in tone for yourself. In chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effect of prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I would argue that he appears to be operating now off of the presumption that mature prayer is expressed in faith by mature believers, and it's powerfully effective, specifically in the areas of merciful restoration. And one might wonder just how powerful is this kind of prayer to which James gives the magnificent example of Elijah's years of toiling in prayer, accomplishing the miraculous, but not some miraculous outcome that reflected some carnival magic, but the revealed good pleasure of God. Okay, so we have three more themes. You're doing well. You're sticking in there. We're putting James together. This is a lot of little pieces, but we're weaving, and we're weaving quickly. But it's, the picture, I hope, is becoming more and more clear. So we have three more themes and still need to give some attention to structure. So while valuable in their own right, we're going to examine them a little bit more concisely than the others. So next is judge or judging or judgment. Something that James, you've already heard it a number of times in the passages that we've already read. So judge, judging, judgment, and to be extremely concise with this theme, uh, what we will see throughout the book of James is a rebuke to deficient judgment of one um, to a deficient judgment of one another. That's that's one of the principal ways he talks about judgment is um, deficient judgment of one another and the rebuke that that solicits. And so in chapter two, verse four, there's the rebuke for becoming judges with evil thoughts. We already saw that in terms of someone comes in, you're showing partiality. What is that partiality? It is a judging with evil and thoughts and intentions, evaluating the wealthy man over the poor in the context of the assembling of the church. And later in chapter four, in his intense treatment of the offense of the tongue that we looked at, he includes the slandering of brothers, which he says is an expression of unfit judgment toward one another and even an unfit judgment not only of others, but of God's law. You are standing in judgment, not only of one another in your slandering, but of God's law. James also makes plain that we will know a measure of judgment ourselves, a standing before God and giving an account. Not in the same way as one who's never been reconciled to God, I recognize that, but there will be a righteous accounting. We saw as much in our study of 1 Peter in chapter 4, verse 17, where he writes, For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And again, James clearly speaks to this matter himself, a matter of our giving an account before God. Speaking to believers, he writes, so speak and so act, not just as those who are polite and love the Lord, but as those who are to be judged, evaluated by the law of freedom. And distinct from believers broadly, there is a clear accounting that teachers will give, as we have seen a few times now in chapter 3, verse 1. It's not just some, you know, I got a thought and I'd like to share it, or you know what, I want my, my chance at that. Well, there's a more severe judgment and accounting with those words being expressed. Um, this is God's word, and I'm packing it for God's people. There's an accounting that will be given for that. Now, there are other treatments on judgment in the book, but we're going to move now to sin, which we know without a doubt God will judge. So first, regarding the thematic engagement of sin, we observe the matter that we spoke to last week when giving attention to chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. There we concluded that sin does what? Sin kills. It introduces death. So if you want one word to understand and express sin, there it is. Death. You want to think about wrestling with sin? You are wrestling with the prospect of death. We also see James directly and clearly calling out matters of sin. 
partiality within the fellowship is sin. Chapter 2, verse 9, knowing but not doing that which is right is sin. Chapter 4, verse 17. Also in chapter 4, when giving a firm corrective discourse, he calls upon his readers to repent of their sins, of their offenses before God. He states, quote, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify you, your hearts, you double-minded. And finally, in chapter 5, as James is bringing speech to its elevated conclusion in the form of prayer, he also addresses sin several times, but always here with a view to the restorative care of the believer. So in this way, I would argue he is bringing sin to its proper conclusion too. Now, sin's conclusion, its natural conclusion, is death, right? Sin leads to death. We saw that very plainly. That's its natural conclusion. But in its superior conclusion is it's being forsaken. And with this conclusion, it brings life through restoration. When sin is forsaken, when sin is repented of, when, when sinners are restored. And that leaves us with wisdom. Wisdom, which is what makes perfection, completion, being fully mature in all these areas possible. Wisdom of God, the wisdom of God, the wisdom from above. You have to have this. If, if there's a binding element to any of these themes and to all these themes together, it is the wisdom from above. It's the righteous, righteously skillful negotiation of words and works and faith. It's understanding how these things fit together in view of what God's revealed. Wisdom was what uniquely grounds and centers this book and why it can be rightfully viewed as the New Testament's expression of Hebrew wisdom literature. You'll, you'll hear that. I would argue in a different context, but I would say, yes, James is very Hebrew in his approach and very centered on wisdom and letting it express itself in a range of ways. And with a view to both the grammatical centering of the book and its wisdom-intensive portion, um, William Varner stated the following, authors will often indicate most important sections in their writing by means of what is called the peak of their discourse. The peak is the paragraph that stands out above the rest of the paragraphs due to its difference in structure and grammatical features. It will also sum up the macro theme of the entire work. The thematic peak of James is found in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Now, I've been pressing this emphasis on perfection, completion, and maturity. And I've said that's what this book is driving us to. But am I conceding here this the central place of wisdom, and, and how do I reconcile those two? Is it, is it wisdom or is it perfection? Which is it? Well, I don't see these two elements as being in conflict. And if I've understood Varner correctly, he doesn't either. Rather, both of us in our own ways are expressing that James is pressing his readers to maturity in Christ by way of forsaking worldly wisdom and embracing heavenly wisdom, that is the wisdom from above. We're aiming toward perfection, completion, and full maturity, and the only way you get there is by means of the wisdom from above. And how does it flush itself out? Well, he's given us, what, a dozen different themes and in different ways and 50-plus imperatives. That's how it's going to work itself out. So, with a view to structure, though, we have to give this portion of the letter its due attention, and I think it's, uh, as such, we need to see the work that we've been applying toward all these other themes coming together, namely that wisdom, again, makes the maturing, the completing, the perfecting of these other elements possible. It's how they work. And while so many faithful, and I would, I would affirm, faithful teachers, faithful pastors, faithful commentators have struggled with James's structural development, I would also say too many have conceded too early. Um, 
and, and you think about um, when you're, I don't know if you've ever experienced this or known of someone. I, I know of someone that was running for a competitive context and it was, um, they knew an idea of where the finish line was. They hadn't been to the finish line before and it was up in a, a mountain kind of context and there was one final curve and then you saw the finish line and they got to that final curve and they just said, that's enough. They didn't know how close they were to the finish line. What a tragedy. And I think too many Teachers, pastors, commentators have done that with James. They've struggled and struggled and struggled with the book and its development and said, you know, there's not a cohesive whole. Or let's introduce some kind of cute thematic development of, you know, uh, sermonish points that will kind of fit together. I think they're conceding too early. And in such, they've concluded that these themes or a like list of their own efforts are just an expression of James providing us, you know, Proverbs-like treatment of various matters, you know, peppering wise insights and statements and lessons together. Are we grateful for that? He just kind of cobbled them all together. And they don't see a cohesive development to the letter beyond the conclusion that all that James says is clearly informed by wisdom and therefore he would direct us to live wisely too. Well, that's true, but we can do we can turn that corner and be like, oh, there's the finish line. There's clarity with structure. There is development of themes. There are things that are, it's not just glued together by wisdom because that's 100% true, but he's aiming for perfection, completion, maturity, and all those other elements fit together. They wove together. They fit together. They're aiming all the way through to a purposed end. And what I hope we've now accomplished over the period of two weeks in terms of the major themes and special emphasis is I want you to see that I could not have spoken to any singular theme or passage without overlapping or dynamically informing another theme. So it wasn't like he just cobbled these things together. He's weaving them. And when he's weaving them, it's because he's got a direction and a, stra a, a skillful approach. And when I addressed another theme, it was yet another theme that would be woven in as well. So it was constantly, what theme are you going to tie to the other? Because they're all, so many of them are present and then they're connecting to connecting, connecting. And that's how I think it should be seen, as you have to see these elements in James's letters informed and shaped by wisdom while also dynamically interrelated as this pastor and pillar of Christ's church drives us to righteous maturity. Hence the description I've given for the book, wisdom's path to perfection. But like I said, that person I knew, they didn't have a full map. Maybe they would have done better if they had a full map. So let's have a map for our walk through James, and that would be the form of an outline. So I'm going to provide for us a, a, a path to travel, um, this uh, journey in James, as it were. And it's been refined a number of times. I was telling Denise, it's like, I think I'm going to show them this form of it and this form of it and this form of it so they can appreciate how we got to this one. She's like, no, have mercy. It's not necessary. And so this is an expression of mercy. Um, but in that and my own struggle of trying to see and trying to fit it together. And I, I was putting it together and I was seeing a thematic development. I was seeing a structural development. But one of the most consequential helps was William Varner, who I've already cited, but he was uniquely helpful. Um, there's a lot of people that have written on James, a lot of opinions, a lot of thoughts. But he provided a grammatical analysis of the book, which we appreciate from our hermeneutic studies in terms of the, he filled in the grammatical gap. And as I labored as far as my own strength and abilities could take me, I read, again, these variety of opinions and conclusions on structural proposals that were more and less persuasive, usually less persuasive. So it was a special joy that when I came to, to uh, Dr. Varner's treatment of it and watching his grammatical analysis and not just hearing an opinion or, or pining eloquently about, well, I think James, no, he says, watch this. Watch how the grammar fits together where James is weaving this and giving us a little breadcrumbs to fit together for a very clear journey with a clear peak, clear connections. 
And that grammatical development of the book also all but landed exactly where my own were too. So that was a special, like, yes, it's always encouraging to know that you landed close. So the exception being that he coupled things together and I, surprised, gave more exhaustive breaks. But nevertheless, let's walk through this outline together. And without drawing out unnecessary details how Dr. Varner did it and how we reached our own conclusions, I'd just say this, his structural conclusions came by noting distinguished grammatical patterns within the book. Um, again, I can't wax eloquent on that, and if I did, it would sound garbly, and I just don't have that skill to articulate it with the same measure that other people might, but I do want you to understand that it wasn't just, well, you know, my, my magic eight ball of James with like, what fits together at this, what fits together, no, there was a clear grammatical pattern, a clear, clear grammatical pattern woven throughout the book that involved the coupling of imperatives with a direct address, usually to either brothers or those being rebuked. And so you'll see, there's a point of emphasis, ah, there's that unique coupling, the terms and grammar, terms and grammar at certain junctures, a matter that's rather clear when you look at the sweep of the book and its development, but also clear from the, the breaks, the opening breaks of each section. I'm not gonna read the opening breaks, but I've provided them for you on the, on the PowerPoint and your notes there uh, so that you can see kind of the opening line gives a transition, opening line gives a transition, and, and James is structuring accordingly. So with this in view, we're going to advance to our conclusion, not only to our time in James this morning, but our introduction to the book. And as we do, let me provide these passage breaks as well as my uh, title for each section. Um, again, I'll read the title. I provided the section breaks for you. So first we have 1-1, one, one, James's introduction. It just introduces the book, who he is, his author, uh, his readers, and basic historic context. Two, uh, two to one, two to fifteen. We have foundations for wisdom's path to perfection. I really think he's laying a lot of the groundwork for the book in that first section. He draws on multiple themes, and he lays very clear arguments that he's going to develop throughout the rest of the book. 16 to 18 of chapter one: the giver of life gives all good things. 1, 19 to 27, we're called to hear, heed, and do the word. 2, 1 to 13, be governed by the royal law. 14 to 26, living faith is a working faith. 3, 1 to 12, the necessary challenge of a perfect tongue. 3, 13 to 18, the centrality and superiority of the wisdom from above. 4, 1 to 10, the necessary pursuit of humility. 4, 11 and 12, being a doer and not a judge of God's law. 13 to 17, the offense of arrogant boasting. 5, 1 to 6, a rebuke to the abusively wealthy. 5, 7 to 11, the blessing of patience. 5, 12 to 18, restoring one another through prayer. And finally, 19 to 20, restoring the one who strays. There is a clear development of argument, of discussion, and he's got a path he's following. He's not just cobbling things together. Um, he's not just saying, well, here's a... There's an expression of wisdom. I think it'd be helpful. Comes back a few days later. I've been thinking about justification. I should probably have some words about that. You know, he's, he's weaving it together. He's very pastoral. He's very clear in his thinking. And he wants to bring us on this journey of understanding the wisdom from above will produce a full and mature and perfect faith. So again, um, there are thematical and grammatical elements that, that fit these units together making a cohesive whole, a cohesive whole that demonstrates that he's a pastor charging a flock and such. Um, and, and what's the nature of his charge? Well, again, their faith would be perfected. And, that, and that's our charge too, is it not? That's what we're aiming at. We also want to walk wisdom's path to perfection. So we're going to walk through 
this outline. We're going to work through it. We're going to see these themes fit together and form one another, but we're going to focus very tightly at different times. But I wanted you to see the whole, to be fluent in James, as it were, so that when we get to different passages, you're having those aha moments of over here and over here and over here all fit together here. And what are they aiming at? Full maturity, perfection, completion by way of the wisdom from above. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for James, and we think about his unique context, growing up in the the home of Mary and Joseph and having uh, Jesus as an older brother and being exposed to perfect righteousness put on display and struggling with that, struggling to to appreciate that this was the Messiah, the long-anticipated Messiah that he too desired to see and know. And you mercifully redeemed him. You opened his eyes, you transformed him, and you matured him to be a strong and faithful man in the scriptures and a strong and faithful leader of your church. And a unique role in such. Uh, We have so many precious books throughout the the scriptures, and particularly the New Testament and the, the charges and exhortations to the church, but James has a different place. And we thank you for that different place and how you cultivated his appreciation and love for wisdom, the wisdom from above, the superior wisdom. It's not like the carnal wisdom of this world, which is deathly and lustful and wicked, but it's distinct and it will have a transformative work. And we want to think about what's the nature of that work. And he's going to walk us through that. And so, Lord, we, as we've mentioned already in praying for the church in Cameroon, we don't want just um, people coming to faith, as precious as that is, the charge is to make disciples, which implicitly means people coming to faith, but also seeing them come to maturity. And so we thank you that James presses hard, presses hard that we be mature, perfected, completed. And so, Lord, we ask, would you help us as we uh, go down this journey of wisdom's path, as it were, help us to avail ourselves of the details and the sweep thereof, and to, to better know and love you and to grow in your grace accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.